Doesn't compare to Charlotte's Web, though. Has everyone started recording? We all good? Wait, oh, sorry. Yeah. Charlotte's Web? Yeah. Okay. Joker wishes right. it could be Charlotte's Web. <laughs> mm -hmm. A real movie about prejudice. Yeah, real issues. That's one good pig. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate. Welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where we talk about your favorite indie movies and genre flicks. My name is Des, and these are my co-hosts, Lydia and Joseph. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. It has been roughly six months oh, God. Uh, <laughs> since we last spoke. Um, we had a falling out, much in the way of the Beatles. Oh my God. Uh, one of us got yeah, married, one of us got shot. Yeah, we didn't we didn't have a Yoko Ono. It was just me. I was I was our Yoko and our Ono. <laughs> you are my moon, my stars, my Yoko and my Ono. <laughs> you tear me apart. Um I don't Good. know shit about the Beatles. I feel like I feel like I'm proud of that point and I don't want to learn more uh about them. No, I understand. I just have no interest. Mm -hmm. Not to knock people who like the Beatles, just I just don't care. It's been like a hundred years. <laughs> New music exists. Yeah, I'm not sure I've gotten really into anything from the 50s. I feel like, or maybe they're the 60s. I'm not sure. But yeah, I feel like I'm into the, the zeros, 1900 zeros, and then the 70s plus. Like those are, there's a, there's a gap of about 50 years there where I'm like, mm, except for some jazz. Not sure I'm into much there. Yeah. David Bowie forward is where music started for me. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was much of a choice, but <laughs> by the time I got around to listening to other things, I was like, yeah, you know, I don't really care about what happened in the 50s. Although people keep telling me that's when music was last good. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's Ooh. definitely an opinion. <laughs> I'm telling you that weird old you white ever people. Work, yeah, you ever work with like like people who smell like cigarettes and they'll tell you like, <laughs> yeah, music stopped being good in the 70s. It's like it's like, no, but. I get it. You peaked in high school. It's fine. <laughs> you got us back into things. You brought the band back together, Des. Yeah. Speaking of getting the Near band back together. For this episode, which we'll talk about at the end, mm -hmm. as is our usual style. But yeah, I don't even know how to do our early part where we talk about stuff we've been watching recently because it's been so long <laughs> that I guess we just have a pick of the litter. Why don't just whatever you feel like talking about? Why don't we start to closest to the to the starting yeah. line? And and go a little bit further back. Like, what's the most recent thing that uh, that you've watched? Who wants to go first? Um, I watched that new Candyman movie. New. There's a new Candyman new, movie. New, new adjacent because it's like two years ah. old now. I thought you've seen that. No. Yeah, I thought I thought you saw that near to when it came out. I didn't realize you hadn't. No, I never watched it. Well, how was it? Yeah. So, uh, here's okay. <laughs> here's the things I liked about it. Thing one, it's a cool ninety minutes. Love that. Um, I know that's a stupid thing to point out. It makes it sound like I'm going to delve into how shitty this movie was. And I will, but it is a it is a cool 90 minutes. Love that I think that's from a horror always movie. Always a plus. 
always a plus. It's great. Yeah, always. It's, you know, I mean, it's it's written and directed by a woman. Very cool. Nia DaCosta. It's very in the like Jordan Peele style of horror movie, um, which makes sense. I mean, his production company produced it. It was Monkey Paw Productions. He was an executive producer on it. Oh, OK, it makes nice. it makes sense that it would be. Um, but it's like very Jordan Peele-esque. <laughs> and it's doing this thing that like so many of these horror remakes and sequels are doing these days uh, where it's just like a direct sequel to the first one in the series as opposed and like just completely negates all the other ones. Oh, gotcha. So like, yeah, Texas Chainsaw recently did that. Halloween, Halloween did has that. done that. Uh, so yeah, it's it's kind of a thing, which is fine. And for the most part, it was it was actually pretty good. I mean, it's it lays it on pretty thick that it's a social commentary. And the original Candyman was two, right. um, but the original Candyman had its own problems with its with its social commentary because it's <laughs> it's it's about this like like the bad guy in the original Candyman, the actual Candyman, is this like freed slave who fell in love with a white woman consensually. And then all the other white people in the town found out and murdered him and mutilated him horrifically. And then he becomes this like figure that you can summon called the Candyman. I did not I remember no that idea. about the yeah. origin story. So that's I saw the movie, but I don't remember reading into any of that. That's I mean, it's it's not even reading into. That's the explicit origin story that they outline in the movie um, in the original Candyman. It takes up like 20 minutes of the movie. Jesus. I do not remember that. I, I watched it when I was younger, so I probably was just looking for the horror vibes. Oh, fair enough. But like the whole movie ends up being about like Candyman trying to like <laughs> unconsensually steal this white woman and like make her into an immortal figure with him. And he's like, I'll kill this black baby if you don't come with me right now so it ends up being like kind of weirdly racist and falling into that like <laughs> old-timey film trope of like the black men are gonna come and steal your women um so it's, wait wait so it the is, new like, movie fucked up. no the old one the, the new movie one. Oh, okay the i was about one. to say the new movie falls into this trap how are people not talking about that no no the, the 1992 Candyman with tony todd mm. this new one is a direct sequel to that movie. And it's it's cool. It's got some pretty neat nods. Like you hear Virginia Madsen's character, uh, who was a grad student in the first in the original movie. Uh, you hear her voice on tape talking about the Candyman legend. And there's certain characters that are callbacks, like the woman in the apartment with the baby. And then the baby itself is grown up. So it's it's neat. And they do this sort of whole new mythos around Candyman that like Candyman as a figure is created anytime a member of this community is maligned and killed in like a horrible and bigoted way. So you have the original okay. figure who was the, who was Tony Todd's character in the 1992 movie, who was a former slave, but there's like multiple iterations of Candyman that keeps the legend alive, which is kind of cool. The way they did it is, is neat. Um, and it sort of has like an artistic bent because the main character is an artist um, so like there are elements that are cool. There's some pretty cool kills. And then you get to like the last 20 odd minutes of it. And it's it's so in your face. There's just like no subtlety to the message that they're trying to curate around yeah. like racism and systemic issues and like white police officers and gentrification. Like there's nothing subtle about it. It's so abrasive and in your face <laughs> that it kind of it feels a little childish. But then right after that, the actual end end of the movie 
some of the coolest kills, like a very satisfying monologue. And then they bring back Tony Todd as the original Candyman right at the end. And it's really fucking cool. Like it's a really cool final five ish minutes. But the actual 20 minute epilogue right before that is so bad and so (laughs) corny and like unsubtle that it's like, fuck, like an hour of this movie was really cool. And then 20 minutes were like unbearably stupid. And then the last five minutes were really cool again. And you're like, it's kind of not a good movie then. That's that's unfortunate. Yep. Complicated. It's good that they find that they found their stride. Like, it's really nice that they eventually found their stride, but it sucks that it's like the last fucking 30 minutes. Well, that's the thing. It's like the first hour is pretty cool. The message is interesting. The evolution of the urban legend is really, really cool. The effects are cool. There's some great kills. And then that 20 minutes where it's like this white (laughs) cop being like, well, this can go one of two ways. Either you say that unconscious black man that we just shot in the face in your arms got up and attacked us or we'll kill you too and say that you were an accomplice because black people are scary. And I'm like, I mean, come on, man. You could have at least implied that's what he's doing and not have him say it in like the dumbest way humanly fucking possible. (laughs) It it just, uh, I don't know. There was no, it didn't feel earned. None of that felt earned. It was just so like aggressively like, well, we need to make sure people know that these white cops are terrible. And it's like in today's climate, I think you can you can write that a little bit less clumsily. I've, can we talk about the tr- this new trend of like horror movies attempting to make social commentary, but doing so in the like least nuanced way possible? <laughs> yeah, like there, I don't think horror movies saying things. There's, I think Get oh. Out was like a very strong example of that i think it was really good i think us was much weaker but i mean jordan peele spent like five years getting get out created and then you know Mm -hmm. put out us like seven months after so clearly it was going to be a little bit soft like a little weaker but yeah i mean i agree i think a prime example of that was the latest black christmas remake that was like feminism men are all rapists and i'm like look (laughs) <laughs> I agree that there is a lot of rape culture we need to dismantle, but when your entire horror movie, the, the actual fear element is like an actual cult of men who are sexually assaulting women to raise a demon, you've lost the thread at this point. Yeah. yeah. You're not you're, you're, trying you're, anymore. You're mincing it a bit. Like, I don't think horror movies are exempt from making commentary i think i think many of them don't but like this new trend of them attempting to do so via just like like whatever twitter hashtag is is hottest at the moment whether it be kill all men or something it's like please attempt to use your material in a useful interesting way horror movies have been making social commentary for years i'm not saying everyone does it but i mean you know you can go as far back as night of the living dead and dawn of the dead and both of which made social commentaries You know, like even Candyman, while a product of its time coming out in 1992, and it definitely still relied on some problematic Hollywood tropes about black men, still was attempting to make a social commentary about gentrification and racism in large cities. But yeah, it's it's somehow gotten more clumsy by being very PC. That's how it feels. It's like there's no real nuance. It's just like very 
direct because it needs to be so overtly politically correct. And it's like, I don't have a problem with political correctness. It makes it sound like I'm no, being it, like, woke culture like is it. ruining everything. I don't actually think that, but I think there is a way in which it can remove necessary nuance and make things feel kind of hokey. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's pandering in a way that is so obviously pandering. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it's difficult, right? But it's like, you know, it feels like an essay first or a thematic idea first. Um, although, of course, this is a sequel or remake of a thing, so it's not obviously thing first. But there's so much stuff made nowadays that feels like the point, first of all, is to have a political or ethical view. And then you're trying to find ways to get that out there, what whatever media that is, because you're trying to get it out to the people, these messages. And it's difficult because often a lot of the reason people come to these genres is for the genres themselves and not to be, but of course they can have something to say. So it's always hard because it's like people talk, you know, Charles Dickens or whatever in the same way. Like now we look back and we're like, it's all about class relations, but people just enjoyed reading them back then. And just, they're really good romps sort of thing that people just enjoy the adventures. And so it's hard. It's like, I feel like a lot of older horror movies that do have interesting commentary were horror movies first that somehow we feel the commentary more nowadays or see that more in them. Yeah. I mean, I think but I'm not sure. I, I still think, you know, this, this Candyman movie is, is worth a watch. I think the end is, is pretty shitty, but I still think it's worth a watch. I don't think it's one of the most egregious offenders of this kind of like really in your face, social commentary shit that's been happening in horror movies. Personally, I think that new Texas mm. chainsaw massacre is the most egregious oh. offender of this <laughs> because they're like having this whole conversation. Basically they're turning like Leatherface and this weird hillbilly family that fucking eats people into like the like arbiters of anti gentrification in small town, Texas. Bizarre. And yet the one black character in it is still the one who dies first. It's like <laughs> you you can't do that in a movie that's supposed to be doing something social commentary important. You can't have both. It's just fucking weird and disingenuous. <laughs> and also you can't have cannibals be your like anti-hero for like gentrification and like industrial destruction of small towns. It's fucking weird. It's a weird choice. It's kind of why I feel like trying to shoehorn uh, I'm not going to say like modern politics because that's not a real thing. It's why rebooting franchises and trying to ascribe new meaning to them is so tenuous, like of, a, of an act. Like you can tell a story where cannibalism is some kind of allegory for for this kind of stuff, but probably not with the franchise everyone knows as like the thoughtless slasher, right? Leatherface isn't commentary on anything. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's the thing that's kind of a little irksome to me about this new Candyman movie because it already was like a social commentary on the ghettos, racism in the ghettos, and gentrification of like large metropolises. So like mm-hmm. you you had an opportunity to take it a little bit of a step further and clean up some of the clumsiness. And they really had me in that first half of the movie where I was like, oh shit, they they did it. They cleaned up some of the issues that existed in the Tony Todd 1992 Candyman, and they're doing something kind of interesting it's artsy it's definitely leaning into the jordan peele aesthetic but it's it's something and it's still got some really great kills and then that that last 30 minutes i was like oh you you had a win here and you just you stole it from yourself (laughs) jeez 
Well, I guess that happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, curious to see what the new, what the next like new original IP out of horror ends up looking like, because there's a lot of territory that can still be explored that is kind of being relegated to the, you know, to the side. It's being put to the side for 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 remakes and sequels of things that have been tried yeah. and true. <clears throat> like the next Get Out is going to be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and we had the hereditary and stuff. I think we have had some topics in the last like three or four years, oh, but yeah. it is. We don't have like the slew that like 80s and 90s where it's like you have like one really fun one every single year, if not every six months. Yeah, it was a fire hose of. of it feels like a lot stuff. of the like mid tier ones just aren't actually that fun or aren't really grabbing people right now. Yeah, because even the mid tier ones are being are leaning a little too into like we're going to be artistic and socially relevant. Mm-hmm. And it's like you can just be fun. I mean, we, we had a handful yeah. of them like. The Hunt still tried to have a little bit of social commentary on, like, class divides and shit, but it was fun. Ready or Not was very much just kind of a fun romp. It didn't have a ton to say, but it was really cool. So, like, we've had a handful of them, but for the most part, yeah, it's either, like, shitty Jordan P or not Jordan Peele, shitty Jason Bloom movies, or, like, uh, really trying to say something horror movies. I will yeah, I'd be shit on in- Jason Bloom films all day long. Please do. I do have something relevant for this. Actually, the like, the latest movie I I watched was The Wailing. The Wailing, which was on Prime, 2016 South Korean horror movie, horror thriller, lot of, lot of genres going on with <laughs> it. Directed by Na Hong Jin, and it is you know I love a lot of South Korean cinema that has been coming. Like obviously I love Parasite, but even other stuff and. Their horror stuff never has been my favorite, but this one I really think is unique and really. Think- oh, tra- Train to Busan, I think I was what is say, Train to Busan unique was and pretty amazing. The host I, yeah. was pretty. Cool. Whereas like Rack, yeah, like Rack and um, the one with the monster. I'm forgetting his name. The host or host oh, or something. Oh, the host like that. was cool. Um, I like. I like. The they host. they were cool, but they weren't my favorites. Is all I'm saying. Like they're they're not exactly ones that I'm raving about out there. But this one, the wailing, it's about. A small town, there is a mysterious illness where people present really horrifically, then they and they kill people around them when they get this illness. So it's kind of zombie-like when you get it, but you're not actually a zombie, you're just kind of enraged for a moment. Um, where the movie goes, oh, firstly, it has amazing shots of the South Korean countryside, and it's really like if you've seen shots of like Ghibli's like the countryside of Japan, very similar to that vibe. Okay. Where you're seeing beautiful vistas of greenery with little rural areas, and th- that like aesthetic of little buildings, um, sheds, outdoor courtyards, stuff like this, and then there's this horror that's that's appearing, and and people don't know what to do about it in this town. It follows a cop whose daughter is showing symptoms of the illness, and so he's trying everything on the planet to get rid of it. He's taking her to the hospital, trying to figure out ways because he he knows what's coming next. He talks to his wife and his mother, who eventually convince him to bring in a shaman to help um, purify her. And they pay off the shaman a huge amount of some money to do this massive ritual. And that is, in a way, this is spoilers, but I won't say what actually happens. But I think the amazing scene of the movie is when the shaman is doing his this, um, this crazy elaborate ritual, which involves sacrificing chickens and doing things that look voodoo-like in the sense of stabbing knives into these wooden dolls and stuff like this. Um, Lots of purification 
instruments being used and just explosive in the cinematic experience. You're watching the ritual go through and you're feeling the thumping music, the blood spurting from the chickens and all this stuff happening. At the same time, you're flashing back to this other character you've met earlier on in the movie and so many stories being told about him, about this foreign Japanese man who has entered into their town. And the cop earlier had went to his house and noticed all sorts of almost satanic looking ritualistic items. And so you see that man, the Japanese man, doing a very similar ritual in his house as the shaman is, but with all black colored things instead of the shaman's white colored things. So he has black chickens that he's sacrificing and using black instruments to do his ritual. And they're both doing something in this moment. And this clash of old spirituality and the failures of science or the hospital to actually help people. And this is just such a cool vibe. The horror in it is beautifully done. Like it feels realistic, grounded. There is no CGI. It's all very practical effects. Not even Cronenberg as practical effects. I just mean like just makeup, dirt, a very dirty movie, which I like actually when we get to near dark, very similar aesthetic in that lots of grimy, dirty makeup being used constantly. Whenever characters interact, they're always falling onto the floor, cuts, bloodied, dirty constantly. And it's just a vibe. It's so enchanting in a dark way as a movie. You're, you fall completely into the darkness that the characters are going through and the hell that they're, hell and tragedy that they're going through where they can't understand what's going on. And uh, there's there's mob violence included. You know, it just has all of those almost gothic horror elements going on about small town. What do you do when there's a horrific thing coming? Yeah. Amazing experience. 99% of Rotten Tomatoes. Awesome. Wow. Good job, Rotten Tomatoes people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is is that across uh, user and critic? Um, I think that's the critic one. Uh, it was just on when we went to click on it on the app. It just, uh, it wasn't the actual like prime, but you know how TVs sometimes have the one that amalgamates all your different streaming services? Yes. Oh, yeah. When you first turn it on? So it was on that and it showed a Rotten Tomato score for it. And we're like, whoa, 99%. My, so my mom was the one actually recommending it to us all to watch together. And I loved it. I think most of us loved it. Not everyone of my group here, but uh, naming no names. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was I the, the first half of the movie was completely engaging. But it's the second half where the themes really connect. I just it'll stand the test of time. Like there's something very true to a to a type of human condition here that wow. deals not at all like following some kind of trend of today's things like, you know, the opposite almost of this. The problem of um the not Halloween. Oh, my God. Candyman. Mm. Mm, yeah. And uh, Texas Chainsaw where it, it's not a remake of anything. It's very much I read an article about it after and it's very much the director's vision. He had a ton of tragedies happen in his life all in the same year. and. This, in a way, is his way of processing it, where he was searching for any kind of spiritual guidance, any kind of thing. And he found that modern, scientific, rational life couldn't speak to the problem of when you have just a, a, a bunch of contingent, horrible things happen to you all at the yeah. same time. Seeming how supernatural. You, how do you face up to that? What do you look for? And the answer is most people look to religion, the old ways ancient practices, stuff like that. Not that he's saying that these are the right answers. And the movie is very clear about that. There's so many things I haven't even mentioned about the movie. Like there's ghosts involved mm -hmm. in it. Like there's a lot going on and it's really epic. A lot going on, but it all ties together. Like don't get, it's not messy about the, re like each thing matters to the story. Just loved it. No kidding. That actually sounds, yeah, you really unique. 
Yeah. And I always love in a movie where you get a scene where it feels worth watching in itself, right? Like when people talk about, I don't know why this is going to come on, but in Daredevil, the show where mm -hmm. they have the slow fight or the exhausting fight and all stuff, and then people look to that and be like, that's such an interesting, iconic fight scene. When when a piece of media has something like that, that's worth watching in its own, or, you know, when people talk about like 18 minute long shots or whatever and different things. I think I didn't watch the movie, but I remember hearing about like 1917 where they have this like super, super long oh, shot of yeah. a messenger running through battlefields and whatnot. And people remember that kind of thing. And here, the shaman battle, the way it's cut together, edited, the cinematography, and the battle of things that are so bygone to our experience, not just bygone, I mean, obviously, I don't know much about. South Korean culture, but it's very similar rituals to things I've seen in Shintoism and Japanese rituals and stuff like that, too. I, I don't think it feels so foreign that you can't understand at all what's going on. I think the way that they purify or use animal sacrifice or these things feel like something connected to an, many, many cultures use these types of rituals. So powerful. I feel like that's something that in horror has uh, that modern horror has kind of strayed from is like this idea of like the old ways. Lately, it's been focused on like the new horrors that um, that technology introduces. I feel like that's kind of been a, a major trend, uh, and I'm not seeing a lot that actually taps back into like mythology or at least just like old cultural pr practices, whether or not they're accurate or not. Like Midsummer touched on it a little bit, uh, and there's a, there's mm -hmm. a few movies that come through and try to get that across. But lately, it's been a lot of just like what if your webcam is haunted what if facebook is evil <laughs> i i think we're we're a little bit away from the religious one too because actually mm -hmm. one movie that this really reminded me of was the exorcist where there's this whole oh to away too much again but they're obviously trying to do things to help his daughter and his daughter and the demon within her or whatever it is the curse within her is not happy about uh, all these attempts to save her from this but we don't get that much either. I think we're in an era where people wouldn't respond well to religious purification mm. of like a Christian sort anymore uh, as being like a force of good in a movie. Mm. So, it, yeah. But this movie is very, like, it's not saying that the answer is to call up shamans or <laughs> there's actually a Christian priest in it too. It's not saying that he's the Christian priest is the answer either. It's just trying to complicate the answer that if you can't rely on the hospital or modern society what do you do or what do people tend to well, i think it's an interesting path to, to follow right because it's it's not necessarily about there being a, a right answer or a good answer to choose yeah. right it's just a matter of like 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 you were saying with the director when when his life is crumbling and everything seems like it's supernaturally you know falling inwards all at the same time like what is the best answer is it just the one that feels the best is it the one that has the few the fewest you know aftershocks or is it truly something that you have to find personally out of it I want to check that one out. Uh, how about you, Des? Is there anything of the last two plus months <laughs> that uh, really, really hit you or relevant to our conversation? Um, I haven't. Uh, strangely enough, I've been watching a lot of horror. Well, then you got to have something. Yeah. So so like most recently, this isn't a new release or anything like that. Um, but I rewatched Annihilation for like the umpteenth time. Oh, God. I do love Annihilation, but haven't we already talked about that? Yeah. So I'm going to skip that one. Um, okay, good. I do love it. Don't get oh, me no. wrong, people. I very much enjoy um, it. But. I actually, I went back and I rewatched um, all of the Alien movies. All of them. <laughs> okay, we have a whole episode. Oh, God. <laughs> do we? Even, but, but yeah. yeah, we do. Even the Fincher one. <laughs> I, I watched all of them, including Alien vs. Yeah, Predator no, 1 we didn't get your, and Requiem. We didn't get your version of it. So yeah, let's hear your views on the 
Uh, whole franchise. Actually, we only talked about the first three. Yeah. To be fair. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to say that um, the only ones that I think that I want to talk about are uh, the original uh, and the two most recent additions to the series. Oh, aliens <laughs> just bad Really? <laughs> Well, well, no, the I'm, I'm, only like, ones I, you want to talk about are the original and the two most recent. Well, I wanted, I wanted to, I, I wanted to draw a comparison. So Requiem and Prometheus. Be Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Or yeah, Covenant. Requiem yeah. was the Fincher one. Well, I, like it's so obvious that the the most recent two movies do not belong in that pantheon. Not that all the ones yeah. in the original pantheon are all stellar, but. It's so obvious. It's a very different vibe in the later yeah. ones. Yeah, and that's actually what I wanted to kind of speak to because, like, the original Alien very obviously has a lot of allusions to the supernatural and to the afterlife and to this idea of, like, divinity and, and you know, progenitors, what comes before us. Uh, and there's lots of, like, weird, uh, like, Egyptian imagery. There's a lot of, like, you know, womb imagery. And despite that, the movie actually manages to still be so concisely a, a sev- uh, I guess an 80s space movie where like they were so clearly obsessed with the idea of space but wanted it to resemble the 80s so it's dirty uh and all the people up there which one the original, the original. i think that's 70 i think it's like 78 78 78 or 79 so, so i mean you so know it's, crossover so it's very clearly but it was it was no you're right it's it's very interesting in the exact historical period of what they're able to do with tech mm-hmm. then and how they did it yeah and also how the te- like they weren't trying to make this pie in the sky image of what the future would look like they tried to make the 70s yep. but in space so you have a bunch of people mm-hmm. who might as well just be like costco employees on a ship wow poor costco just Okay, yeah. well like well like like the people who work in like the like the underside not in the navigational yes. like like cockpits yeah, the, the, okay. like, i feel shipping, like i feel shipping like shipping calling it the underside is not great either but like it's but that's how they that's how they portray it right like they keep they keep um two characters down basically in the guts of the ship where it's like sweaty and <laughs> i hot. thought you were referring i thought you were referring to costco employees as people who worked in the <laughs> underside <laughs> no like, we don't talk Jesus about costco Christ. employees we don't talk about them. Uh, I was like, oh my god, <laughs> the underbelly of Costco. Costco, no. do Costco to itself you? is kind of the underbelly. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Costco just is the underbelly. Yeah, but they've got they've got really good hot dogs. No, Costco's amazing. I think everyone knows. Also, Costco. if you ever want to get too many Fruit Loops in one purchase, that's the way to go. But yeah, they have like they keep certain employees in the underside of the ship, and and they they they're constantly talking about like, well, we want to get a better cut of the pie because we're also contributing members, and it's so yeah. obviously seventies in space. But uh, but all the the allusions to spirituality and the afterlife and like Jungian concepts are all background. Um, whereas mm-hmm. the modern two movies, the reason I wanted to bring them up is because those movies don't feel like alien movies. They only feel like the supernatural and esoteric concepts that were not explored in the original trilogy. Yep. And yeah, I don't Ridley think Scott got famous enough that he could get really up his own ass about religious iconography. Yeah. Well, like I, I think I, I think it's honest in a way that he wants to explore it as opposed to just like na- navel gazing. But like, I don't think the movies are a success, but I actually think it's really interesting that they actually tried to focus on that stuff. Um, it overall did did a big disservice to the actual the property and the mythos by just like stuffing more garbage in it and saying there's these huge albino bodybuilder men. But I don't know. I actually really, really appreciate 
that Ridley Scott was willing to to kind of trash his own career to attempt to <laughs> to to facilitate that same conversation that had started with the original Alien. I remember in Alien 3, probably the only part I remember saying this was the only part that's interesting. There is like the bizarro, almost Matrix like outfits mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and sunglasses people that come at the end. And it's like, it, regardless of how cool or not cool that stuff, like, it is interesting when they bring in those little bits of world building elements. And I think that is one of the more successful parts of the original Alien trilogy is the very background world building yeah. is like mostly pretty cool in those movies. I think it's valiant let's say to tr- tr- to try to do the later movies where it is mostly just expose it almost reminds me of how like when people get really into lord of the rings and all the many many background books about the mythology or even george r, r. martin too oh, where yeah. it's like there's now like seven or eight background books to the original like the original game of thrones world and so but tolkien's is even more relevant because it's like it's truly like almost not even a story for for most of them right the, there's a lot that are literally just bits and pieces yeah, just of slices world building um regardless i think the point i was hoping to make was that uh ridley scott came back to a series that was for all intents and purposes done just to kind mm-hmm. of explore a theme uh unsuccessfully that that he that he'd kind of underlaid <laughs> throughout the, the the rest of the movies and i actually kind of like the theme the movies are trash but but I really appreciate that they tried to. Yeah, I, I think I have a similar view. Yeah, like like it's 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 you know it's a shame that they had to even put aliens in the movies. I don't have a problem with the concept. I think conceptually it's kind of cool. The movies are just really fucking bad. Yeah, and watching them, it, it you get that sense. I like the the thing I appreciate. The like maybe the only thing I'm gonna take away from them and say I think was done well was just Michael Fassbender acted the shit out of his roles. There is something to me where I'm like, I know Michael Fassbender is like a really good actor, but there's something off-putting to me about it and I about him. And it's it's a similar kind of off-putting that I got from Army Hammer, and he turned out to be a cannibal. I'm not saying <laughs> that Fassbender's a cannibal, okay. but there's something weird oh, about him. He's definitely him. a lizard. There's, there's right? There's something yeah. weird about him. He doesn't feel societally acceptable. And I can't him and, I don't him know him why. Hall. Oh mm. yeah. Well, I mean you know, Gyllenhaal suffers from like a similar issue to right now, at least in the press, to like Leonardo DiCaprio, where he keeps dating fucking 21 year olds. Yeah. I was flipping through movies the other day. This is completely unrelated to what we're talking about, but Gyllenhaal brought it up. I was flipping through movies the other day with my mom and just like telling her what movies I thought were fucking terrible, which is such a shitty minded way of doing things. <laughs> um, but we came across that Prince of Persia movie. Oh, and I was like, man, there's nothing more offensive than some guy who's like a distant heir to the Swedish throne playing a fucking Persian guy <laughs> in a oh, movie Jesus. in a movie that ended up being like egregiously terrible. Yeah, fucking that, that movie. There was no way that movie was ever going to be good. No, why is every video game movie fucking awful? Like, they all just suck. All of them. They. Yeah, yeah, there's not a single one know. that's good. I mean, at least Doom, while terrible, was like ironically a good watch. The rest of them, for the most part, are like just real shit. Well, Doom. The, f- the first, uh, that's what, yeah, Doom. Um, the one the where first, the rock uh, pile drives a demon. <laughs> yeah, like it's bad, <laughs> but it's like an ironically good time. It's very fun. I mean, the the first Angelina Jolie Tomb Raider was pretty cool. It wasn't good, but it was like very watchable and entertaining. I remember when that came out. Jeez, 
I'm yeah, it came out in, like old. fucking 2002. That movie yeah. was like pretty cool. Like it wasn't good, but you know, it was fun in the same way that fucking like National Treasure is fun. Yeah, I was going to say at least with with the the core of that movie, it's just like an adventure movie. It's just like a National yeah, Treasure. Just, you know. It's National Treasure, it's Indiana Jones, it's the same kind of thing. Although I heard that Uncharted movie which is also a similar vibe was fucking awful. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's it's not really clear why, because it's like a lot of them should be similar to making like a Marvel film or a DC film. or And I mean, a lot of DC films are bad, but like most DC it films feels are like bad. you should be able to hit. Yeah, it feels like you should be able to hit some kind of just basic adventure vibe that people enjoy. But not so. Yeah. Not many uh, video game movies that have been a success. Oh, there's a uh, Halo just had a TV series, too. I didn't even bother touching that. Yeah, oh, and there's a new Resident Evil series. TV. Yeah. Saw like a tiny trailer for that. And I'm like, eh, it looks like it might be acceptable i've heard uh, i've heard really rough things about the halo show apparently they just yeah. did not get it right it's, not that there's anything about, to get right yeah what about halo is there to get right i thought it was just like a fucking there's a storyline there's a storyline yeah yes. it's actually like yes. lauded for its storyline it, yeah it's pretty well beloved actually Fuck, i don't know i don't play halo i don't know yeah um yeah well i'm not saying you're missing out on high art and just just that that's like <laughs> a thing that people uh, cared about yeah like it feels like the sensibilities i think that's kind of the thing that 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 people miss out on between translating games to movies is like the sensibilities of a game are very different um what they ask of the audience than a movie and thus the pieces that are there to keep your interest will not perfectly translate they never do the ones that people think are good storyline games though like there's no god of war no last of us no well they're doing a last of a show bioware game ones that's oh, true, are they? Yeah. 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 But it's like that those ones that actually have great stories that people actually laud for their stories. You know, they said they instead choose like and Halo is a little bit more in between, but it's lauded as a shooter story. Right. It's not yeah. like people love it because the story is, it's like oh, I'm playing a shooter and actually the story is not bad. Yeah. No, they just keep so, doing like fucking yeah. Mortal Kombat and shit. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, all right, I feel like doing a Mass Effect TV show or movie would be incredible. Yeah, like, they, I don't know. I just yeah. feel like that would never be. It's I think it's just impossible to translate 40 hours of gameplay into a two hour movie. Like, it's just not. We'll see. We have to cut things down for sure. But yeah, a TV show is, I think, the best translation. Yeah, because you get more hours mm -hmm. out of it, but you can also get make it seasonal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> you can do many series even. Mm -hmm. So we'll see with this Last of Us TV show. Yeah. Yeah. Should be interesting. Liddy, have you been watching any TV? Oh, yes, actually. I just finished the Andrew Garfield miniseries, Under the Banner of Heaven. And how was it? It was good. It was very good. It's based on a, uh, it's based on a true crime book. Of course, I had to watch it. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's set in Utah, and it's like just sort of in this small town in Utah that's like very, as Utah is, LDS very large LDS community, um, Mormons, and a fairly horrific murder of a mother and child happens in the town. And uh, the detective played by Andrew Garfield, who is Mormon, and his partner, who is Native American, are investigating it, which is already kind of like, if you know much about the history of the LDS faith, tensions are already relatively high, simply because one detective is Mormon and one is Native American. Mm-hmm. But it ends up, you know, delving into the fundamentalist side of Mormonism. And it's like very strange and uncomfortable and interesting. And it's just this like huge character study of this very specific community 
revolving around this mm-hmm. like really horrific and confusing crime. It's it's really cool. It's it's only like I think it's only like seven or eight episodes, maybe. But it's it's phenomenally well acted. I, I do think Andrew Garfield is is very good in it, but I would say the actors playing the the more fundamentalist Mormons who are who he's investigating. Um so Sam Worthington, Wyatt Russell, Rory Culkin are the better are doing a a stronger performance than he is. I think he's fine. He's good in it, um, but it's not the best thing I've ever seen him in. But it's it's interesting. It's really cool. It's kind of a difficult watch at times. It's very uncomfortable, but it's it's really well written. It reminded me a lot of that Waco TV series that we loved with Taylor Kitsch. Right. Um, It has a very similar kind of pacing and vibe and kind of really like intense character study to that Waco miniseries. Nice. Yeah. I started episode one based on your recommendation. And I, yeah, I think the atmosphere in it is worth in itself to like hear how they, they're not that different than the average American, but they do have a way of, uh, well, sorry, like Andrew Garfield's character, who's like a detective who is very much in the LDS faith, but is not as full devotion as the people he's investigating. And uh, yeah, just the way they talk to each other. And it's so subtle but interesting mm-hmm. like uh I, ca- I can't even replicate it but stuff you know like saying like you know brother like we're in this together like we should do this well like it's so soft and subtle in a way about like the way that they're like we're on this journey together we're gonna be good yeah and uh, as you go Mormons, further into it, it that style of communication the way they speak to each other highlights some of the like sort of subtle undercurrent of manipulation that's occurring in this small town around the faith and, and how alienating that is for the other detective who's Native American and where these tensions are coming from. And then you do get these right. sort of interesting kind of flashback cutaway moments where they're showing almost like a dramatization of how the LDS faith was created by Joseph Smith. So you're going sort of like a flashback right. back in time and seeing like, Joseph Smith in the 1800s creating this religion and it starts off in this like sort of really amazing miraculous hopeful way and then it digs into some of the darker histories of the LDS faith the things that are no longer followed by the traditional Mormons Uh, and it's really very weird I don't I think at times it really negatively portrays the LDS faith and then at other times it it's really like it highlights it as no, this is just another religion that can be corruptible. It can be fundamentalized. It can turn into sort of like a terror group. Um, but at other points, it's, you know, this beacon of hope for certain communities and it's a very important faith. And it's very strange. I don't totally know if it was I, I really don't think it was trying to trash the Mormon faith. I think it's at least as somebody who is not LDS it felt like fairly balanced because I think it could have gone, they could have really dug in and been like Mormons are horrible criminals and crazy fundamentalists. And it it doesn't do that. It really does show like the divide between fundamentalist Mormonism and the average Mormon community in the eighties. But because it's an organized religion, there's still these sort of like strange elements that to a person who is not a member of a church, it may feel manipulative or or disingenuous which is interesting hmm. it's worth I, a watch. Um, I'm, I, I don't know why i view andrew garfield as like a comedy actor i don't think i, I think i've seen <laughs> him in a lot of serious things 
I can't think of a lot of like comedy things I've seen him in. Maybe it's maybe I've only seen him in like the Spider-Man stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing I can think. I guess Tick, Tick, Boom had elements of comedy to it. Yeah, that was a little bit silly. Um, but yeah, I, I see what you mean. There is like a difference in vibe for sure. Yeah, I'm not usually one to uh, laud the acting skills of Sam Worthington, but he's very good <laughs> in this. Shockingly, shockingly good in this man who rose to fame from James Cameron's Avatar movie. God awful fucking movie. Oh, I have watched a ton of stuff, but I'm like, I don't even know if I really want to talk about half the stuff. But like, I'll, I'll say the one that I last finished TV show thing. And, and I don't know. It's weird because it's like, I feel like it did affect me at the time and I thought it was very good. But I remember just thinking like, like the feeling of A minus really like hit me by the end. And that's uh, Barry. Finished all three seasons of Barry, restarted it from the beginning. I watched the first season way back when it came out or around the year it came out. And it's very, very good. It's a very good character study. It's about a hitman who, Bill Hader, who takes acting classes to try to find his way in life again because he's doesn't feel good about the fact that he kills people for a living. And it's a really cool study of that. Um, they even allude to the fact of its sort of Shakespearean feeling where, you know, you have a lot of top like like Macbeth type Shakespeare characters who are sort of murderers or are sort of scary people but are dealing with internal feelings of the soul but it, it is we were sort of joking about uh, before recording this but the Joker movies and whatnot there is that sense of even though it's all very good character study like how many times have we got the violent white man character study story like how many Jokers and taxi drivers and Scarfaces and stuff like this do we need and so it's like even though it is excellent I felt like I almost wanted more of the supporting cast or other characters to get some cool stuff. And they do get moments. There is some cool moments for other characters, but it really is centered around Barry, Bill Hader's character. And uh, it's dark, it's comedic. It does what it wants successfully. But I just think there's more interesting stuff going on in the prestige drama category right now. And so this is the this thoughts are coming like a month after finishing it. Like, I feel like at the time I thought it was actually really great, mm. but it's like, now being distant from it, I'm like, well, if I had to like rank it compared to a ton of other good ones, it's not the one I would recommend first. So it's it's sort of sad and awkward, I guess. Uh, did did either of you ended up trying it or no? Actually, I've I seen, seen um it. I've seen the first two seasons and I loved them. I haven't watched the uh, third season yet, but I I had been interested in seeing it because I had heard um, it's as good as the other two. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's I had just heard that all six or seven episodes were directed by bill Hader himself mm. and like he had directed one or two of the episodes on season two and they were by far the best like the standout episodes of that season so i was like oh it's cool that yeah. they're giving him a full season to sort of see what he can do with it i just haven't gotten around to watching it yeah I, it's it's weird because i don't have a bad thing like i really think the entire show from first season to third season and i think sort of season shockingly like wraps up everything super well like it's really thoughtful about how to connect all the dots make every character have an interesting ending Somehow, though, even though everything is done perfectly, it just doesn't elevate to something super memorable to me. Or Like, it's weird. I have no real explanation for it because if pressed, I couldn't say what I think is bad about it. I, I really think it's all excellent. The acting is excellent. The style is unique. This sort of very slow burn, dark satire, not, it's not satirical, a dark comedy sort of style. It, it just it works. But when I compare it to something like Fleabag, Fleabag is just so much more emotionally affecting to me of, I guess it's a, you could say it's a similar style in that it's a dark comedy. And maybe there is just something about PT, like war PTSD that just doesn't 
do it for me. Like, I, I, I don't know. I can't connect with his character as much as I'd like to. Hmm. But yeah, it's clear that it's a huge passion project, though, and that I can feel it emanating from the show that Bill Hader absolutely loves this character and wants to do like a great service for him. But yeah, that's about all I have to say about Barry. Nice. I'll still probably check it out just to finish it off because, you know, I've watched the oh, first yeah, two I mean, seasons. If you like the first two seasons at all, like the third season is excellent. I there's not like this is not a critique of the third season. Like, yeah, I think they're all equally excellent. I feel like there's just too much available to watch lately. Oh, I feel that. Has anyone finished Stranger Things season four? Mm-mm. I didn't finish part two. Yeah, I only finished part one and I started part two and I was just like, I, I was over it by that point. I was just <laughs> like, I can't. These storylines, they're just not doing anything for me. I know a lot of other people loved it, but yeah, it just wasn't the, but I, I never liked Stranger Things that much. So mm, I was, fair. I was always like, you tip it just slightly to the wrong side. And I'm already like, ugh, no. That's kind of how I felt about season three. Like I felt it went too much into the sort of that Goonies yeah. campiness um, and it kind of lost me. This one I do think is, is more back to like the, the things I loved about season one. It had a good amount of horror element, still had some of that cute kids kind of founds family thing but it's grown a little bit with the age of the characters and some really awesome new characters were introduced worth watching in my opinion yeah i was oh go ahead Dustin. well i was just gonna say that um i i think the thing that i liked about the first season the most was like the the mystery not the horror was like mm. much of the like yeah the, the the kind of unsavory things simmering beneath the quiet town with like the weird science facility and with season yep. two, when they started to kind of get away from that stuff is kind of where I tapered off as well. Uh, do they kind of touch back on any of that stuff? Yeah, so there is, I would say there is more more of that mystery element to it um, mm-hmm. with this new big bad that you have in in season four. And it's, it's a little bit of like origin-esque elements to sort of like unraveling the mystery of, of Eleven and, and what happened to all those other children in the facility and like how to get Eleven's powers back. The other thing that I liked about this season was that um, you didn't have as much of like just the core group is all together in one place and relying on each other. They sort of split them apart. So you have Joyce and um, a couple other characters off in one area. You've got Mike, Eleven and Will um, and Jonathan in another space with a couple new characters introduced there. And then you've got Nancy and Steve and Dustin and um, like all of those kids in Hawkins still. And they're they're working. They eventually have to find a way to work together from their distant locations. But ultimately, like they're sort of kind of pocket stories and individual mysteries within Mm. each of those sort of pocket stories, which is kind of cool. You know, you have Eleven's journey and then you have some stuff going on in Russia and then you have the Hawkins core kind of story. Yeah, I I think they did a really good job. There's just something about it that I feel like the major story of it has been played out or like, I don't know, there was, even though it, there was an interesting mystery and stuff like that, it just doesn't, it didn't feel fresh to me anymore. So that was just, it could be that the lip I, service, from an execution you know. standpoint, I think it was perfect or like as good as you can get. I just, I, I don't know. I want it to be something else. Just not, not the show for me then. Uh, but yeah, and I, I've, I've also purposely avoided, or I was, I was sort of avoiding talking about stranger things. And then the other big one that everyone's been talking about, the boys but mm, yeah because i don't want to say too much about it but i because i i have argued or talked about it so much with groups of friends and i'm like it's an excellent season of television that lots of people have different opinions about but yeah i almost have the same critique as i do with where it's like i'm kind of over it the boys i feel like it's told what that type of story is and i guess i just don't love that world enough 
to care for it beyond the message that I originally get that superheroes can be bad actually it's like yeah they can be <laughs> like <okay. laughs> I uh um I just feel like it it's continuing with that too much and hasn't done enough new for me yeah I I watched um a bit of the first season but I couldn't stomach a lot of the gore mm -hmm. um and and the violence but I'd read the comic book back in the day so like I'm really glad the show got to see the light of day because I think when it comes to comic books it's one of the better ones especially one of the more the better serialized ones that actually does kind of tell one contiguous story and has something to, to say unlike a lot of the comic book shows that have kind of gotten swept up in the last like five to ten years but yeah i i can see where you're coming from joseph like it's it a lot of the themes are probably a bit too hefty to just be stomaching every week given their comparison to modern life <laughs> No, I mean, that isn't my problem. Like, I like good. I just think I got it. Like, I, season one, I'm like, I get yeah. it. Like, there are superheroes and they're bad in different ways. And it's like, and there's propaganda machines and there's a whole military propaganda engine going on mm -hmm. here. And like, there's a lot of different commentaries that it's making that are all interesting. But I feel like I got 80% of what they've had to say from season oh, one. Yeah. And season two really drained me and I didn't love that much. Season three, I think, is actually really good and actually a lot of parts of season two were excellent too like there's enough parts that always feel good enough to, to watch through and entertaining enough but i'm always left a little like hollow afterwards i'm always like oh, i do wish i got something more out of this in yeah. the end i also feel like i'm kind of over the whole like trumpism thing at this point like we're giving him so much fucking yeah. airtime and i feel like season yeah. three really leaned into like a lot of the very specific Trump politics stuff. And like mm -hmm. there were, yeah. there were almost like word for word fucking lines that were something Trump would have said that were put into Homelander's mouth. And I'm like, yeah, I get, I get what you're doing here. I mean, it's just, it feels like you're like two to three years too late to make this kind mm -hmm. of comparison. The sh yeah, I the don't show know why we're that. doing it again. It's, it's difficult, too, because the, the comic actually predates even the Trump administration by a good, good long while. Like, I read this back in... When was the... When did the first comic come out? Yeah, because this is this is like an older comic. This is like like No, I know, and I'm sure but, when they wrote this comic... translated, yeah. I'm, su I'm sure when they wrote this comic originally, it was supposed to be kind of like a... They're using some, like, Nixonisms or or George yeah, Bush stuff or, so, or something like that. Like, I'm sure it was related to another political figure, but Trump is not the first person to have this mm -hmm. sort of, like, propaganda machine and and controversies. It's just that in the show, there are some specific moments with Homelander that are literal just, like, so ostentation obvious. remakes of, like, Trump moments. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I, I know what you're doing. I get that this was, like... A formidable moment in our history or whatever but like it both feels too late to make like an interesting new commentary and not long enough away to like rehash and really dig into this on mm -hmm. an intellectual level yeah. so we're in this yeah. like weird space where it just is kind of annoying it's just saying something that we we've all heard a dozen times yeah yeah and i would say my one specific take on this season that i was in order as at the end of season two there's a character who's clearly meant to represent aoc and but and she has a, like an interesting twist in in the show and i really thought they would dive into that more in season three and she is a main character in season three but i just thought like they did like nothing with her character essentially like it is stuff happened but thematically it didn't feel no, that it interesting just, it just feels like they're saying like see 
Yeah, it's I know. Real. I know. Hardcore <laughs> right wingers are are awful, and we hate them. But look, the Dems are just as bad. And it's like, yeah. I, fucking fine. Yeah. I don't know. Just say you're a libertarian or whatever the fuck. Nobody cares anymore. Yeah, I think I think the show, it, at least from what I watched, and and even the comics themselves, start to start to limp along once you realize that none of the characters are likable, including the ones you're supposed to be cheering for. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine the show found a way to subvert that. Carl Urban is charming as as hell, but like his character is grim, dark sociopath. Like there's people mention a lot, but the show does deviate a ton from the comics. Like people have commented, and this is a way in which people actually appreciate the many other ways because it's it's much less, even though it's very gory, it's much less grim, dark than the comics, and a lot of characters get surprise, hopeful, or good things happen yeah. in a way that would never have been allowed in the comics. Yeah, I think it was Garth Garth so. Ennis. Who, who, who wrote the comic and that's like the point I'm trying to get at is the the, the, the writer of the comic is is known for his this particular brand of like cynicism and and just like yeah mm-hmm. it's 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 dark and that's what he does that the show at least as much as I watched of season one did manage to subvert that a few times which is nice because uh, it's yeah the boys the comic dragged for me for that reason yeah I think especially as a show mm-hmm. if it was if it was all darkness all the time it would be a slog the television yeah. show uh we're we're pretty deep into the time so uh should we head into the uh the movie sure, sure. yeah um so i brought a movie called near dark to the table it is a how do i put this it is it is a it is a vampire ensemble movie from 1987 uh, directed by Catherine bigelow who at the time i believe was married to uh james cameron so it follows basically a caravan of vampires, all from different time periods, all from different walks of life, kind of living together in this like found family scenario and uh, some kind of like a normal, I'm going to say normal loosely. He's like kind of a shithead. Uh, this <laughs> normal-ish human being gets wrapped up when he falls in love with one of the vampires or not falls in love with, tries to accost her, but yeah, falls in love uh, and he gets dragged in. She bites him. He has to be forced to join their troop kind of falls into the hectic on on the road lifestyle of basically a roving gang of murderers (laughs) Mm -hmm. and yeah it's it's uh i kind of chose it because for a a while this movie was difficult to find it's somewhat of a horror movie it's definitely like a neo western movie and it has like a fairly robust cast but i think i think in the pantheon of vampire movies it actually manages to do a couple things unique and so it's kind of a uh, an offhand choice for me. I thought it'd be a fun one to throw at you guys. How did we feel about it? I it's not bad. Like I I think it's like that bodes well. I think it's exactly where I expect a lot of like cult classics to be. I suppose where it's like there's interesting ideas here where I feel like it's worthy of paying attention for because it it connects to ideas or things that you see in other things and like has a sort of essence to it that's interesting in its own right. At the same time, I find it hard to think of anything that I like really loved about it. I found it kind of interesting that like there was it's so very, very different from another vampire movie that came out that exact same year. And yet there's something about the vibe of Near Dark that feels so much like The Lost Boys to me, but like Mm. just sort of a less it sounds mean, but a less fun version. Like and it's not to say that I think Near Dark is bad. I I just think The Lost Boys has a lot of what we think of in those like sort of 80s cult classic films where it's like ostentatious and campy and 
kind of over the top and really fun. Near Dark doesn't have that. It's a little bit more, I guess, thoughtful and like there's some interesting genre melding elements happening within it. And I do think for a vampire movie, it is kind of interesting in the fact that you never hear them utter the word vampire. A lot of the Mm -hmm. like classic vampire tropes aren't used within it. You know, none of them seem to have fangs. Religious iconography didn't do anything to them. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no like stake to the heart moment or any of those kind of old world campy kind of tropes that we have grown to associate with or at the time would have associated with vampire films. So I think I think there's interesting elements to it. And I think there's a decent amount of parallel between it and the Lost Boys with that sort of young man lured away to join this gang of miscreants and become a half vampire. And then he has to run away and find a cure with his sibling. Like the basic plot structure is very similar, but the but the actual like, I guess, style of it is very, very different. Mm. In that it's a little bit more, I guess, serious. Yeah, I think I think I think that's a good way to put it. Like it, like it definitely takes it takes the tropes and the depictions of vampires very seriously in a way that a movie that is this campy and you know like of the t- of its time wouldn't have, without also romanticizing it in an interesting way. Like I, like I think I think the thing that's interesting for me is that more than anything, it is it is trying to tell a story about. Uh, about not found family but about ties of blood like in a very literal and figurative sense where it's like these people are all degenerates they're all horrid horrible to each other and to other people and they murder and they're kind of bound together not by want but by necessity and you're kind of getting to see what that does to them and they're almost like caged animals like they're not romantic they're not glorious they're not beautiful they're ugly um they're they're twisted they're yeah, they're just, kind of just gross. like hill, hillbilly vampires. Yeah, and like one of them is a confederate. One of them is a child who got turned, who just never got to grow up. Like many of the characters are just kind of trapped in this period uh, where it's not that they got to peak, you know, they, they never got to the peak of who they could have been as people. They got frozen in time and just forced to kind of, you know, kick the can down the road into eternity. And yeah, it's 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 not family. It, that that's kind of the thing that I that I come away with it looking at. It's almost like this. I don't know. Like it's almost kind of poetic how they're all kind of on this destruction path together and really don't love each other. Yeah, I think that's one. Of the, that's almost the the thing I was touching on from the opposite end. In that by the end of the movie, I really get the sensation that there's this. If there is like a real message, it's like his the main character's temptation out of regular homegrown uh oklahoma life is leading towards a path of destruction and it's the coming back that actually heals him and puts him back on the right path by the end of the movie which really seems to be the lesson by the very end uh about it there's a lot more to the movie of course but like there's something about that overarching like the life back home actually and not going with the the youth gang is uh the or eternal youth gang is the right answer and the movie gave me a lot of different vibes. There's something very Bonnie and Clyde, Thelma and Louise, like the road story and the self-destruction of like, we're going out of our regular lives and we're going to go on a self-destructive journey type thing, whether it's for good reasons or bad. But like that kind of mythology of the, not really the West, but like, you know, of that area is is in there. And then I also got a sense of like, because this is much 
is more serious than something like Lost Boys or doesn't have that sarcastic, corny edge to it. So it did give me a sense of like a much worse version of something like Nomadland, which came out like 2020, I think, about caravan life, trailer life in the United States and what it is like to live that way and and from many different angles and just like getting by. So I don't know, there's there's something about the situation here which connects you to so many different um, of course, to think of vampire movies and things like that, I was very much reminded of um, one particular. Uh, what's the one? The Arctic one with the vampires. Oh, 30 Days of Night. Yeah. Yeah. 30 Days of Night, for some reason, was the one that came to mind. Well, because, again, I think it's very like, you know, there's something uh, with 30 Days of Night to be said about this sort of s- small town vibe, like the very specific invasion of the small town or destruction of like the small town community hands together kind of feeling um, that I think this movie is kind of getting at because it's, you know, pulling this small town boy out of his small town community where he was protected, kind of throwing him to the the wolves a little bit, which is interesting. And I, I do think I love a genre meld. I don't think they're always perfect. I think it was an interesting choice to take horror and try and, like mesh it with a western i think it ended up being kind of like the mediocrest version of both to me oh where it's like i i'm sorry i'm i I can tell they're going for a western vibe but it didn't really hit on like the strongest points of what we associate with a western and it didn't really hit on the strongest points of what we associate with horror good or bad so it's like you're getting this mix between the two, but it just it's a little bland. It doesn't kind of evoke mm. as much as I would have wanted from that kind of meld. And I don't think they play together as cleanly as they could have. You know, when I think of like a perfect because Western's difficult, like it's it's such a iconic image and such a very specific trope laden kind of style of film for better or worse, as much as we all have problems with the repugnancy of Joss Whedon, I do think he did a great Western meld with Firefly, where it was sort of a Western sci-fi mix. Mm -hmm. And I think it did kind of evoke enough of that Western feel that you understood what he was doing with this genre bend. And I just, I don't think I, I got quite enough of either side of the coin for it to feel cohesive, I guess. That's fair. I think that's probably the, one of the best criticisms to leverage against this movie is like it it it's very um ambitious and doesn't really succeed in uh, a lot of the categories uh, if any but I think at least it managed to nail I think the aesthetic like like I think the actual work portraying the characters is maybe where the movie was successful as opposed to like its actual thematic or narrative points Yeah I almost wish we had more time with each of them because I do think they each said they're sort of, I'm a Confederate soldier. I'm, you know, internal youth or whatever. Yeah. Boy. But I'm like, would it have just made it worse to give them more lines here? Uh, like things like that. Or, but it was one of the more interesting elements. And it's tough. I almost feel like it, it might just be a, a, a problem of mediocrity. Like the lines are like the things to deliver. Like, oh, you've said you're a little boy, like for the millionth time or whatever. You're just like, I'm not getting enough evocation of like characters just sort of saying who they are or. Um, doing the thing and yeah maybe mm-hmm. like for a, a if you want to keep it at a tight time frame then and which this sort of it didn't actually feel like it super overstayed its welcome for me but i was surprised at the like the surprise fourth act almost by the end of the movie mm-hmm. 
where you're sort of you're at the back home and then there's still another 15 minutes to go yeah it is uh it's a clean 90 90 ish minutes but it i feel like it could have stood to be a little bit longer if they figured out what they wanted to do with all of the unique vampires I, I do think, yeah, it was sort of a strange choice not to lean more into at least that little kid vampire, because there is something like immediately disturbing about the idea of like this child who is frozen in time and is actually hundreds of years old. And I think they did something really cool with that, with like the interview with the vampire movie. And of course, they had the the base structure mm-hmm. of the Anne Rice novel to do it with. But I think uh, Kirsten Dunst's character, they did something good with it where they used the childlike nature and she and she sort of went into that childlike character to manipulate human adults around her and then at other moments you could tell that she was a sort of emotionally immature full-grown woman trapped in this doll-like body and there was something very just immediately wrong there's an immediate wrongness about that that you can dig into and they didn't really do that effectively in this movie they mentioned that the child is you know potentially very old hundreds of years or decades old but like they're still giving him kind of lines that you would expect the corny little kid to have (laughs) and like never showed moments where it seemed like he was a more mature personality just trapped in this forever young body yeah that was sort of disappointing to me i think if if the movie were to be recut or maybe just remade i think i'd love for them to use like the imagery and the actual like diegetic function of being a vampire like being frozen in time to maybe explore like character trauma because like their growth is halted more like especially with the child right like the idea is like that they are they're frozen in time and the world keeps changing and they're doing their best to keep up with it but they're barely scraping by i i wouldn't mind a movie that kind of excludes caleb entirely (laughs) And just sticks with the caravan and kind of goes with their life. I think um, that Stephen King novel and movie, Dr. Sleep, was it Dr. Sleep? It was the one that they turned into a remake of, or like a sequel to The Shining with Ewan McGregor. Well, yeah, it is a sequel. Dr. Sleep is a sequel to The Shining. The book is Yeah, like there they tackle a lot of the same tropes. Like it's literally a caravan of vampires who are all frozen in different periods of time. And like I give I give near dark credit for being probably one of the earliest interpretations of this genre bending vampire plot thing, but mm-hmm. yeah, like none of the vampires really get their time at the at the forefront to to be more than just background noise to Caleb's story, and Caleb is not a compelling enough <laughs> main character. He's some kind of out. Al- I mean, that's the the son of the movie is some kind of allegory about leaving small town life or. Or that you could maybe it's being sucked into drugs or sucked into, you know, rebellion, re- rebel culture or something like this. But it wasn't quite clear. And that's fine. Like, I don't need things to be ham-fisted. And I'm actually glad it's not ham-fisted about it. But the, yeah, it, it was clear, especially by the end of the movie, that there was some kind of message being said about it. A good thing I want to say about it, though, that I do think is a unique aspect about the movie that's really interesting is the way they handle special effects in it, where the major thing that happens to them is light uh, like daylight is the main thing that hurts them as vampires and everything else they're immune to. Um, so they're getting shot, they're getting thing. And it's like, you never see them heal, but you'll see the next scene and they'll be like mostly healed. And then the next scene, even more healed. What's left on them is often like if they're burned from the light, they'll often have this like black ashiness, like sort of left on their body part or their face usually. 
um, thing. And yet they're still getting sweaty, grimy. Like it's such the opposite effect of the like clean modern CGI look that a lot of stuff has where this is the like dirtiest, grimiest types of special effects going on here, which a lot of good 80s horror really leans into. And this, I think, is a cool example of it that doesn't go Cronenberg-esque or anything like that, where stop motion or other things are being used. It's really just about them living a lifestyle in which they're getting effed up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like their type of immortality is not invulnerability in the least. No. They're really messed up by things. And then I'm better, like, uh, you know, a little bit later. And it's not funny about it. It's just kind of like a fact of their lives that they can just kind of get away with doing rotten things because they're like, yeah, I'll just be fine in a bit. Kind of like Kamiko in uh, uh, The Boys, too, mm. where she's yeah. like the one superhero who does who has super healing, but not invincibility of any kind. So she gets gutted constantly and it's horrible. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think that is the one cool thing about these vampires, because oftentimes vampires is you know, as we know in, in a lot of literature and movies are used as sort of an allegory for like high society. They're like the wealthy yep. genteel monsters. And then your werewolves are sort of like a, an allegory for like the impoverished communities or the, or the low, the low breeding communities. If we're going like mm -hmm. well back into the 1600s and kind of thing. Whereas these, these vampires are unquestionably meant to be some type of vampire, but they are shitty rifter criminals they're disgusting and they like are constantly on the run from the law and they all look like some version of like you know a hillbilly or a gang member or whatever like a biker gang guy or something and um and it's just interesting you don't see that too often a lot of the time the vampire trope is that they're clean and high society beautiful and, and sexy exactly exactly yeah uh, there's a romance about them mm-hmm and there's none of that in this. Well, yeah, although May sort of is a middle ground. This, she's the temptation into that life where everyone else of the group is very dirty and gross, where she is she's like the onboarding ramp for the audience of just like, yeah, yeah like we know vampires. She, she does has a bit to her clothing, but she's a bit rough and tumble, but she's beyond beautiful. Right. Like at the, her opening scene with her is she's almost angelic like that these three boys are all like, oh, my God, look at her. Yeah. And plus, like, she's like poetic. Right. She's talking about like. Oh, like the night, you know, has a cost and like, isn't the night so oh, like, yeah, that, some yeah. Bizarre stuff, she, yeah, she's very much like the onboard ramp for the audience of just like, yeah, this mm -hmm. is a vampire, like, obviously. And then the rest of the vampires are, are like the, the curveball. What? But she seems to be more empathetic about her killing, too. She's I think she is willing to kill, but she she feels so she's sort of disconnected from the group. And then Caleb is even further at the beginning from the group. But he actually sort of becomes more like the middle of the movie where she still feels like that bridge type like she's still sort of half human mm -hmm. she's not like she's a full vampire but like she doesn't feel as gritty as the rest of them yeah overall um, and and she seems to be the most recently turned too. like she they never talk about how old she is or like that she's things and by the end of the movie there's a sense in which not to spoil too many things too that that she's special too yeah overall like i don't i don't think it's like i don't think it's you know the best movie but i think as a unique entry into the the, the the ever growing list of vampire movies. I think it really does stand kind of on its own. <laughs> I think the type of movie it reminds me of when Lydia talks about like early two thousands. What was it? Thrillers like to catch um catch a spider. 
Oh yeah, like there's, there's along came a things spider. Where you, like, list a bunch. Yeah, along came a spider. Where you lives. list a bunch of stuff where you're like, yeah, I remember that movie existing, but it's hard to give it like full credit on its own. And this is somewhat unique. I'm not saying it's part of a list of giant things, but it's like, it's not strong enough on its own to be like, I am super excited to recommend this movie. But I could see that if someone's interested in watching a lot of different stuff about vampires or uh, modern westerns, there's a way in which yeah, this could fit into a list mm-hmm. of like something worth checking out. To, uh, to to see what it's about. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's weird because it's it almost is fighting against the point in my mind where I've talked about this a lot. Where often really bad movies have a certain way of like they they become corny or fun or whatever in their like badness, and then really good movies are obviously fun to watch or good to watch for their because they're good or well executed. But the problem is that valley of mediocrity where it's like, it's just forgettable. It's hard to say anything about. And this feels like it should land somewhere in there, but there's enough unique aspects that I'm feeling very like, mm, about mm-hmm. it. Like I'm like, it doesn't strike me as just being mediocre there. I see why it gets a cult classic status. Mm-hmm. Cause there is something about it that isn't like anything else. I think if anything, it can be yeah. congratulated for at least trying to do something new with something that's played out. Because I feel like a lo- you can probably even track the points in a lot of the pop culture vampire movies that followed where they might even be referencing back to Near Dark, either without knowing or, or consciously doing so. But I think that's about it for my list of stuff that I had mm-hmm. about the movie. Yeah. Closing agreed. thoughts? I mean, I think I think it's worth taking a look at, especially if you, you know, if you if you like movies like the Lost Boys and Fright Night and oh god, the Quentin Tarantino George Clooney one with uh, from Dusk Till Dawn. Thank you. Yeah, which has a similar sort of western, leave in the small town adventure kind of feel, or like criminals on the run kind of feel, but is much yeah. more hokey and campy. It's if it's a more serious foray, but it has elements that evoke a similar feeling. So I think it, for that alone, it's it's worth taking a look at if you're really into those types of movies yeah like the intellectual man's b movie (laughs) the thinking man's vampire movie kind of though yeah it it certainly tries it certainly tries i don't think it's a i don't think it's a a a resounding success but i i appreciate that it was brief and unique oh yeah i mean any movie that comes in at a at a cool 90 i'm gonna at least give it a shot Oh, totally. I've, I've said this in a previous episode, but we need to ban the cool 90. No, Never. Man, cool 90 that is about, the standard. It's, it's been said about 900 movies on this podcast yeah, by this point. Because I will watch a ton of hot fucking garbage if it comes in under 96 minutes. Oh my God, I will put it on yeah. and give it a shot. Every yeah, as soon as you time. hit, as soon as you surpass two hours, you start to, you start to, I, I start to question actively the editor's choices. Yeah. I mean, like, you want to be, if if you're coming in at, like, two and a half, three hours, you want to be fucking hitting me in the Lord of the Rings level of love for, like, long-ass bullshit movies. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm just, oh, God, I'm going to get halfway through that fucking thing and have a rough go. Like, I loved the Batman, but that movie was about 45 minutes longer than it needed to be. Absolutely. I liked that movie. Like, I liked it. Yeah. You could, uh, you could cut out... I hate saying this because I think these were actually some bright parts for that movie, but I think you could cut out all the Catwoman stuff uh, and a uh, lot yeah. of of the other plots, and and it would and it would come out to like two ish hours, and that'd be appropriate. 
We've also talked about the Batman. Like, I, I love that we're coming back to the show. And it's like, we've already talked about the Batman in like three different episodes. And it's just a really good example of a movie that's way longer than it needs to be. Yeah, way too fucking long. I, at least we're not like, very positively <laughs> referencing it. You know? Also, I, I'd still say, like, it's still really good. It's but fun. I would nine times out of ten rather watch a just above mediocre movie that's 96 minutes or less than an astronomically good movie that's three hours long. And I yeah. know what that says about my like care for quality in cinema, but I don't fucking care. Three hours is oh god, it's, it's like so a hard. chunk of my day. So much of my life. It's so much of my life sitting in a chair, and I just mm-hmm. ugh, how I feel about that movie, The Irishman. Oh my god. Ooh, yeah. Sorry, Scorsese. I do think it's it is it is a bizarre effect, especially because nowadays there's a lot of miniseries, a lot of TV series that are just long movies. And I never get upset no matter how long a TV series is or whatever. Oh, because there's natural stopping points. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's off ramps. I binge five fucking episodes of a miniseries. But in my mind, like the way I can rationalize it is that I have natural stopping points. If I want to stop watching it, if I want to go out, if I want to like take a break, whatever, I have a natural intermission that I can do that in. A three hour movie doesn't, they don't do intermissions. So it's like, then I just have to fucking pause it in the middle. And that feels weird. I feel like I feel like a filmmaker probably doesn't want you to pause in the middle of their movie so you can go make dinner and return. Oh, no. I mean, like all plays always have an intermission. So it's like yeah. there is a way in which it should just be possible. But mm-hmm. yeah. no, but there's a certain level of like immersion, you know, in a film. And there's no there's no natural stopping point in most of these long movies where you can do that. I mean, in fairness to Scorsese he did sort of put that into the Irishman where he did have sort of natural stopping points and you could watch it like a miniseries like just release the miniseries you know like like we all know that this is like a dick sucking fest for you just release it as a fucking miniseries I feel like um it'd be a really, really interesting like Scorsese apparently <laughs> I I think it'd be a really interesting statistic this is this is outside baseball I'd really like to see <laughs> statistics about if they if they put intermissions into movie theaters for three hour long or two and a half hour long movies, I want to see the statistics of how many people return after the intermission, mm. and how many just leave. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think it's just habit and like the way they structure it because it's like in plays it there's always an intermission and so it's just like you know we it, we could easily do it just for some reason we decided ninety minute movies is the way to do it instead of three hour movies with an intermission. Yeah, but now we make three hour movies but still treat them like ninety minute movies. Yeah, but it's it's not that common. And the Irishman was, you know, probably probably they would have done something different had it not been a Netflix. I would say the know, majority they did try to do. the majority of movies now are like two fifteen to like two forty five in running really? time. Like so many of those fucking. Marvel I feel like two movies, hours is the average. So yeah, many of those fucking climbed. Marvel movies are two and a half hours at this they never point. Feel like that to me. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, I will say that that fucking new Doctor Strange movie. I felt the time on that one. <laughs> Oh. I didn't like that movie, but it didn't feel like extra. Oh, movie sorry, sucked. Sam Raimi. Movie fucking sucked so hard. You can't do nothing with Doctor Strange in a movie. I don't know. You can do better than that. Like, the first one also <laughs> sucked, but it. it sucked way less. Yeah, a lot of people love sucking Marvel's dick. That doesn't mean their movies are fucking good. It means <laughs> they're passable popcorn entertainment. And that one was prepare, not. Okay. Prepare our inbox We're obviously for the super tangented at this point. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you want to contact us, you can contact us on Twitter uh, at Fans Lab Pod. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Please. So 
So uh, tell us what movie recommendations, how you feel about some of the stuff we've been making. And uh, yeah, that's that's what I have for that part. Okay, bye. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs>